we are honored to have as our speaker Tim Earl Smith. He, Tim Earl, began practicing Vipassana meditation in 1989. And um, in 1997, he spent a year in Burma as an ordained monk. And later, he practiced for a year at the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. Since 2001, Temple has been teaching meditation and Buddhist psychology to a variety of people, including prisoners, activists, youth, um, and people with severe illness. He currently works for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship in Berkeley, coordinating the BASE and youth programs, and teaches in Northern California. He serves on the Spirit Rock Team Council, and he leads a series of residential meditation retreats for teenagers in Santa Cruz twice a year. Thank you so much for coming all this way. Thanks. <clears throat> Stomach. Good evening. Excuse me while I recover my voice. Tonight I wanted to talk to you about um, emptiness and activism, uh, two large topics that um, hopefully I'll show some way that they're connected. Um, I work for the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, and so a lot of what we do um, at the Buddhist Peace Fellowship is we take practices um, like this, like sitting meditation. And then the rest of the Dharma um, path, the Eightfold Path, and other aspects of Buddhism, and combine them with um, uh, compassionate action. And sometimes that takes the form of service, um, and sometimes it's uh, activism. So if my voice gets soft and you can't hear it, um, my lips are moving and you can't hear <laughs> the sound that should be coming out of them. Raise your hand and I'll speak up. <clears throat> so as the first exercise, um, if everybody would sort of raise their hand slowly up. Great. You can put it down. So during this talk, whenever you have a question, <laughs> you can mindfully feel your hand rising and you can ask a question during the talk, or you could save it afterwards. But um, uh, I like the engagement. So that will be the activist side of the talk, <laughs> is you can actively ask questions. Um, <clears throat> I began my meditation practice um, just about the time that I also began doing very focused activism on um, it, my first uh, encounter with um, activism was around the Nevada nuclear test site in the late 80s. I was going down there on college break, spring break, fall break. And we would do these peace protests, um, or no tests as we called them, um, in the desert. There might be 5,000 people gathered for 10 days trying to do something meaningful um, against this huge, vast uh, area of Nevada where they used to um, test the nuclear bombs. And as a young, uh, inspired, idealistic um, activist, I would go down there. And the whole um, purpose of going down there was to try to show that you can actually um, resolve conflict without getting involved with uh, violence, and violence in the heart, in the mind, or in action. So the whole organization of the camp, um, 5,000 people living in the desert, um, how we would protest, what we would do, um, had to come from uh, a place of nonviolence. But it had to also be engaged. You couldn't just sort of um, sit around and watch this, you know, the clouds pass by. There was this sense of having come there, what could you do? And I was able to see um, some very beautiful forms of engaged spiritual activism when I was down there. Um, I would um, walk across the, uh, the highway and down this um, entrance ramp 
to the front gate where most of the activism or protests would happen. People would get arrested at this one spot. And then the whole way down there, I was saying, okay, don't get violent, don't get violent, don't get violent. Okay, I'm feeling myself getting angry. Don't judge the guards. I was coaching myself the whole way down there. And I would get to the cattle guard. Um, and I would just, <clears throat> I would see it. You know, I'd see the guards and I'd start judging them because they were, you know, they'd have their guns and their camo and sort of very masculine stance. And I was like, ah, the root of all evil. So my mind would start contracting. I Just all I could do not to... Um, have my mind contract into anger and judgment um, and righteousness towards the guards. And I look up the road and my favorite memory, the one that stays with me, is um, these um, three elder Quaker women walking down the road and they just floated down the road. They were laughing, singing a little bit and they got to the guards, they got to the gate. And without a break in their sort of joyous um, stance. They called out to the guards and they would say, hey Dave, I'm back. And Dave the guard would walk up and it's like, oh Sally, it's good to see you again. And they would have this exchange. And I, you know, I didn't understand how they could remain in such um, an open, connected space while they're also um, confronting this great place of um, violence, both the nuclear testing, the violence on the planet, the possible violence of using nuclear weapons. Um, they had this great spaciousness about them, but they're also joyous and connective. And I watched them build re- relationships with this guard, and I watched the guard approach them and like them um, and sort of relax his stance. And if I had tried that, I could only have faked it. You know, I could only have faked friendship, because inside I would have been sort of brimming with my own kind of judgment and fear. And so I remember um, being down there and saying, okay, I can see that I'm caught in judgment. I can try not to judge, but that's really, I don't know how to do that. And I see these examples of these beautifully engaged beings, um, but I, I don't know how to transform myself in that direction. And then soon after that, I sat in my first 10 day meditation retreat and on that retreat, about four days into it, just doing this very simple practice, sitting still, not responding to all the impulses to action, coming out of the stream of constant chaotic thoughts, feeling one breath, feeling half a breath, a quarter breath, spacing out, wandering, coming back, coming back, coming back, and doing that over some time, I it dawned on me about four days in that this was actually a tool that was going to radically transform me. Um, one, because it put a buffer between what was going on in my head and the actions I was taking. Just by sitting still, um, because I wanted to get up, I wouldn't immediately get up. I would see that there would be an impulse and it wouldn't automatically turn into an action. And two, by not constantly dwelling in, um, like Tarzan swinging from vine to vine, we're just swinging from thought to thought to thought to thought all day long. You can drive all the way to work and back and hardly even know what you're doing because the whole time you're just surfing endless thoughts. And sometimes it's the same thought and you'll bounce around a little bit, but you can stay up in the realm of all this uh, thinking and not actually be present for your life. So it's, it's those two things are very radical. Being able to sit still while your mind is moving at its normal pace and not have it turn automatically into action. Not every thought has to become action. And that you don't just dwell in the realm of uh, incessant thought. There's no end to thinking. I went on a, um, uh, I did two three-month retreats, didn't find the end of thinking. Went on two six-month retreats in Burma, no end of thinking, (laughs) kept going. And then I went on a nine-month retreat and gosh darn, there was no end of thinking. There's an amazing ability for this mind to think, to think it's thinking new thoughts. Um, it's got a creative aspect and it's quite happy to rethink old thoughts over and over and over. It's uh, shameless in its addiction to um, thought. But what did grow was a buffer between um, the constantly changing thoughts and emotions that would be going on within me 
and how that would turn into action, speech or body, action. And then a certain spaciousness came up around the thinking itself. And that, that has radically transformed how I relate to thought. Um, thought's not the enemy. In this particular practice, we're not supposed to stop thinking, which is good because it's very difficult to stop thinking. There are meditation techniques specifically geared towards stopping thought. And they give you a temporary jacuzzi of the mind where you can just get a little hum of no thought. It's quite peaceful. But then you have to come back into the world and engage again, and thinking starts right up again. So it's useful. Um, but in this particular school, we're not trying to get to the end of thought. But we are trying to get some space around our thinking and some perspective on just what's going on with this incessant um, play out of thoughts, a stream of thoughts in our, in our mind. So we ground down the body. We ground down and we touch base into our body. Um, I'm not sure exactly what everybody's doing for their practice, but for many people it's just feeling one breath at a time. And maybe it's just half a breath at a time, just feeling one out breath. And then one in breath, one out breath, one in breath. It's actually very radical to do that. The way that does transform and bring space to the mind, the way it gets you down into your body and out of just um, the play of thought um, is a huge shift. And then over time, there does grow uh, spaciousness around how thoughts play out. So here's one very um, odd image that's been plaguing me for a while. My mind seems to like it. Um, I've made use of it and I'll offer it to you. Imagine for some reason that you wanted to fit a hundred marbles in a balloon. So you, you're pushing these marbles in um, and you get a hundred in this big rubber balloon and you suck out all the air. Those hundred marbles have no place to move. Each one of them is sort of um, bound to the other just by the contraction of the balloon holding it all together. There's no space in that. You blow a little air in that balloon, <clears throat> suddenly they can move around a little bit, right? There's more air in the balloon, you can shake it, they can spin around. They're not locked into place by the tightness of the balloon. And then you keep blowing air into that balloon and suddenly you can shake it and they can dance, they can swirl, and there's just a lot more motion um, available around each of those marbles. So we're not trying to get rid of the marbles. We're just trying to add space into the balloon so that those marbles are not constantly grinding against each other in, um, with no space in the mind. The mind isn't crammed full of thoughts. All the space that's available to the mind isn't taken up with our to-do lists and our rehashing the past and our planning for the future and our analyzing the present and laundry and shopping lists and old arguments and just crammed in there. As much space as we have, um, we don't want to fill that up with thought. But some thought is necessary, right? Some thought is necessary to navigate your life. Um, the, the way that we hold relationships often has some conceptual mapping to it. So I know who my father is in a crowd. That's good to have those thoughts so I can actually find him. But I need space around those. Um, no hands going up, so <laughs> just want to scan for that. <clears throat> Another thing happens when you put space in that balloon, just working this image again, is that those thoughts have a chance to unfold and become less darting, tight, dense thought and more well-rounded thought. So I might have in a very busy day, I might have a thought whip through my mind. I haven't called my mom in a while, I should call her. And if it, my mind feels tight, that will feel like a chore. I'll feel a little guilty. I'll start trying to fit it in somewhere. And if I call her, I won't have much space for the conversation. With some space into my mind, um, that thought can say, wow, I haven't called my mom in a while. Hmm. And then I can think about the last time I called her and I can um, spend some time not just thinking about her but feeling into the fact that I miss her and we haven't connected for a while. Then I do call her, I have some space to actually have a conversation and it's not a to-do thing to check off but it's actually something where there's a moment to relate to her. 
And it tastes very different, right? It tastes very different to actually be present for someone. And that's often what presence is. When you feel someone's being present with you, is they have the space to connect with you. They're not, they're not contracted and tight around inside um, or spaced out. Um, so um, that's kind of a very quick Reader's Digest version of how space and action, compassion, um, connection to the world uh, help each other. Sorry, what was that? So the question is, what, the question is, what do you do to create more space? Um, the um, there are a couple of things to do. Um, one of them is this practice. So um, again, there's no end of thought. So if you just keep thinking, you won't come to the end of it. There's always another to-do list. There's always another memory to kind of sort through and store. There's always another way to look at the past. There's always another way to look at the future. So there's there's always thought going on. You can spend some time directing the mind out of the stream of thought rather than encouraging the habit. You can sink it into present time experience that is not thought. So feeling the expansion in your chest and the relaxation, the expansion and relaxation that's present time experience, embodied present time experience, where you're not stoking the fires of more thought. Um, in this modern busy culture, um, we can get very busy. And so there are other strategies where you might prioritize and try to simplify your life so that there is not so much driving you, so that you don't take the space that you're able to cultivate and put too much in, as much as possible in, which is kind of a runaway um, thing that I think our culture is doing right now, is we take human capacity and we're just dumping it full of crazy-making, small, quick um, detail. And so we're all running at maximum capacity, and it's not really on high-priority stuff, not great works of the human heart or mind. It's just a lot of busyness that we pack ourselves through. So reducing your busyness um, is one strategy. And then training your mind to be uh, grounded in the present moment, um, like a, a table has four legs or three legs. Um, put part of your awareness, the flow of your awareness, into the body or into sound or into sight or into the food you're eating. Taste it so that you're not putting all the weight of your awareness into just um, analysis and thinking and conjecture um, going through life kind of automatic pilot as an observer far back, but actually be embodied. And then the thoughts that you have, um, they're, not, they're not a problem. Um, they're part of the, the zest and fun of being alive, but they haven't taken over the show. So, yeah. Um, so <clears throat> in... Uh, in Buddhism, in uh, uh, almost all the forms of Buddhism, this notion of emptiness is very important. And um, I might take just uh, some time to try to unpack that a little bit, make it a little more relevant. For the um, the early school of Buddhism, um, called uh, the, the one we're studying here, um, often called Theravada. The, the Buddha talked a little bit about emptiness of all experience, all everything that is occurring has this characteristic of being empty. Um, and then if you look at the, um, the small portion of the universe that is your own direct experience, your own body, um, that's your own little bit of emptiness is called selflessness. Um, the word is anatta. Um, when very strong emotions happen to us, especially the strong, uh, painful emotions, um, anger, sadness, jealousy, um, a tight, obsessive greed, are um, the, 
the direct experience of that in its worst form is a certain tightness and struggle. There's a certain agitation. There's a certain um, sense of struggle on the way things are. So whatever is happening, your relationship to it is, is tight, uh, a little agitated and struggling. <clears throat> the, the key in that, in your own personal experience of, um, of the flow of your life, is that what binds that together, what holds that together in tightness, is some ingredient of um, the, the small view of, of identity of I, the existence of I am. So when I'm angry, I'll usually feel isolated. Um, I'll feel an opposition and I'll be struggling with whoever I'm angry at or I'm angry at traffic or um, people I live with, um, friends. There's a tightness in the mind. There's a slight um, obsessiveness in the mind. Um, And it tends to be fed and held together by constantly by um, constantly perceiving what's going on in a tight relationship to yourself. So I am. Um, I am being wronged. Or if this traffic continues, I won't get to work on time like I want. Um, sometimes you can actually hear yourself saying I, 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 or my, 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 if you can have a storyline running along with the, um, the strong, tense emotions. But sometimes it's, it's, it's something we're so used to, like the ground, we have such a strong I reference that we don't know that we're doing it all the time. So as we loosen ourselves in out of the thought stream, one of the things, whether you're doing it intentionally, watching out for how your mind will create this tight sense of I, um, or whether you're just coming out of all streams of thought into the body, um, or into sound or whatever direct experience you're having, you're loosening the, the mind's capacity to tighten around this isolated, small eye. How are we doing out there with that one? The problem, the, one, the reason this is so tricky <clears throat> is that it's, it's so common to have this grounding in a sense of, this is me. I'm having this experience. I'm driving. I'm working. I'm getting up. I'm dressing. That we don't we don't know how to feel into that as if there, we don't know how to make more space around that. Um, it's it's a, it's an aspect that the Buddha talked about a lot. This the fact that there is no contracted self that's experiencing all these things. It's a much more fluid process. The the way in on it is every time you feel uh, dissatisfied and you can kind of pick anything throughout the day that you feel like you're struggling with. It could be work, again, um, relationships where you live, things you'd like to change. Anytime you feel a sense of opposition or dissatisfaction or struggle, if you can, take a deep breath and just sort of comb through and see if you can get... um, the I that's threatened by the circumstances you're in. It's very different when you have um, a healthy version of I, which you need, because it wouldn't. You're not just trying to get rid of this I reference point, this reference of I. You're trying to have a relaxed, open, fluid, healthy, dynamic sense of self. There's nothing fixated. I'm not the same person as yesterday. If I was, I couldn't change. I'd be stuck. I'd have to stay the course. (laughs) But if I could actually adapt and be fluid and responsive to my environment as I go through, that fluidity around allows me to actually be present and join each moment of my life that I find myself into. I can actually merge with it because I'm flexible and fluid as opposed to this contracted temple that's been there since birth and is like a little billiard ball going through bouncing off life 
and coming out the end. It's fluid and dynamic. So one image that um, some people have found helpful is, again, like those marbles in the balloon, you might think about ice cubes floating in a uh, pitcher of water. When the, the sense of I is strong, it's sort of like being that ice cube. You're not really in fluid connection with the rest of the water. You're bouncing off the container of the pitcher and you bounce off the other ice cubes. So when we're in this isolated form, um, this contracted form, um, you and I are going to bounce off each other. We're not going to really meet each other. We're not going to have much of an exchange, just kind of like ice cubes clinking together. As you keep attending the breath, keep coming out of this thoughts, um, thought space as a training, not as a way to live your whole life, but maybe 20 minutes a day or however much you want to practice um, or more if you want to go on a retreat. Those ice cubes melt and then you become much more fluid and much more integrated into your environment. And so even like given all the water in the ocean, an iceberg is just locked in its own little identity, its own little space in the ocean. Yet once melted, it becomes fluid and then joins the greater body of water covering the planet. And if you look at the, um, the sort of, if you had on the one hand contracted forms of mind and heart, you know, severe anger or jealousy or grief or lust um, or some type of food obsession or whatever is like being on this side. If you look on this side, um, the beautiful parts of life, the ones that are just absolutely timeless and exquisite, they tend to be expansive. They tend to not feel so constrained by, constrained by time um, or by fixed identity. Um, uh, love flows very easily. Compassion flows. Your own joy, creativity, adaptability, they flow pretty easily. Your own wisdom. Um, so on these other hands, you know, when you, uh, when you laugh really hard, there's a sense of freedom in that. And you can often laugh with hundreds of people and feel that unity when you laugh. Or when you're actually caring. Um, I know for me, one of my greatest doorways into just bottomless compassion is around dogs. I just am one of those dog people, some cat people, dog people, I'm a dog person. So when I encounter dogs, um, especially puppies, there's this, there's this sense of like, I just don't care. Everything else that I thought was important seems to pale in comparison versus uh, connecting to this beautiful, innocent dog being. And having found it there early on in life, I've been able to find it more um, in other areas. So the sense of compassion, the sense of love, um, Useful wisdom, not just sort of, you know, your own feats of brilliance that don't serve you or anybody, but you're high on coffee and you solve something and then you realize it doesn't really solve anything. But in the moment, it was great to think the thought. Um, but an actual uh, useful, compassionate wisdom um, is something that uh, flows out of you and connects with other people. And other people can pick up on it. They can, they can make use of it. So on this side, um, there's this sort of spacious, um, connective, uh, um, interbeing, interconnected uh, field where things are not so contracted. You still have a sense of I over here. You still could find you in a mirror. Um, you still know your name and you know where your keys are. <laughs> you know where you put your wallet and you know where you work. Uh, you don't lose these things over here. They're just not tight and constraining you. Um, your identity isn't, isn't uh, locked um, over here. It's expansive. All these facets are useful. They're useful in the greater play. Um, over here, they tend to isolate you. They tend to put you in opposition. You know, uh, either I myself, or this is my family, and that's your family, or this is my country, your country, I'm over here politically, you're over there politically. Um, over here, there's a lot of divisiveness and tightness. 
Um, and over here, there's spaciousness. So <clears throat> the, um, the approach into emptiness, um, if you want to live in a cave for you know, 30 years, you can actually keep expanding the sense of emptiness. The container of the heart and mind become quite infinite. And there are places, these meditative highs that you can get into where you can start feeling the infinite nature of space and the infinite nature of your own consciousness. You know, every one of you is not limited to certain yogis. Every one of you can soften your uh, mind, create space to this infinite degree. Before infinity, there are many steps. (laughs) And any space you'll find um, useful. Any spaciousness you can uh, pull in, you'll, you'll often find that the things you love most about life in those times that you're loving life, there is a sense of spaciousness. There is this sort of... Uh, spaciousness is maybe a better word than emptiness because <clears throat> empty can feel a little bit like outer space, devoid, black, cold, barren. Um, so it's really empty of is, a con- is our contracted... Um, usually it's contracted uh, concepts in the mind and usually there are contractions around um, identity, identity of me, mine, my family, my group, me versus other people or other animals, or me versus the environment. <clears throat> so that's all that when you get into um, the space that's available is that uh, you soften into something that's much more fluid and dynamic, less contracted. There is so how are we on that so far? So, softening, space, space soft. Come out of the thoughts. <laughs> Breath. Okay. Um, <laughs> there is um, there is a sneaky little side door problem with spaciousness. And that there's an experience that feels very spacious, but is actually um, a very slippery form of contraction. How many of you are here for the the series on the hindrances a while back? Okay, a few people. So as we get spacious, so we have these hundred marbles in this balloon, put some air in, shake them around, space you can keep sort of expanding and then you can actually create so much space that it's easy to fall into um, a kind of a spiritual apathy. And it can feel, um, the lighter side of it can feel very cozy. So we sit here, we see, oh, these are just thoughts. I don't need to attend to them. They don't control me. I'm very spacious. <clears throat> and then things that you could be engaged with, actually um, have your heart and mind connected to, you start creating a little bit too much space around them. And it's not so much space as that you're actually, rather than cultivating an attentiveness that can be present, you're starting to space out. So instead of be spacious, you become spacey. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in being spacey, it can be cozy, especially if you haven't felt a lot of space before. Or if you have this as a default, if you're not an anxious type or someone a type A doer, 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 if you do um, find that you know how to approach life with a little bit more spaciousness, you can then become slightly unplugged, uh, slightly disconnected. You're not so much isolated in a tight space, but you're kind of like Teflon. You're kind of going through the world and nothing's really materializing for you. You're not really connecting to people. You're not really investing very much in your environment. You know how to space out. And some people like your company very much because you're very easy to be around and everywhere you go, you're quite relaxed. There are beautiful forms of this. Um, 
but it's slippery because there are it does start to get into and it opens the door to um, a disconnection and then all that space actually begins to kind of um, be filled with kind of a swampy uh, stagnant um, spaciness that still feels open and unattached um, but it's very disconnected and if you have this tendency or if you um, take this tangent too far um, you can get uh, sort of existentially withdrawn you can get um, you, you lose your there's no reason to get up for the day and you've got you've sort of seen through all thought so why even brush your teeth <laughs> there actually are ways that you can start to space out and it begins to re- resemble actually um, a form of depression taken too far or if you have this tendency getting uh, just into the spacious quality um, it, it can topple over into this apathy so the corrective measure of that is this engagement side so it's good to relax open the mind but to the degree that you relax it you also need to connect with it you do need connection you do need the warmth the interest, the fire, the aspiration side as well. So that's why these things are not bad, but they tend to need space. And then you tend to need to fill the space, keep it uh, alive, engaged, dynamic, fertile, um, and not something that just sort of floats out into the void um, by its own, which is where the engagement comes in. And if you you hear people talk about uh, the Buddhism, it's often described that there are these two wings uh, in Buddhism. There's the wisdom side and there's the compassion side. And the wisdom side points often towards this um, empty, spacious um, capacity, not so tight and driven. And the compassion side brings in the warmth and the connectivity. And <clears throat> I've seen for myself that um, just being compassionate uh, but still sitting on my cushion is not as strong as getting up from my cushion when the bell rings and then engaging. So in the spaciousness, there, when the spaciousness is quite healthy, there's this sense of uh, open eye. You tend to relate and be curious about other people, a sort of a freshness to the mind. Then engaging from that, having that conversation, calling your mom. <laughs> I'll call your mom by the end of the night. That's, that's the most important thing, the whole thing. Um, uh, it should, you should engage that. It'll strengthen the spaciousness to allow it to be um, useful. It's sort of like uh, um, working the soil of a garden and then not planting anything in it. The soil actually ripens through use, that the plants pull in nitrogen from the atmosphere, fix it into the soil. You can't just till the soil and make it loose and loamy and pull out the weeds. You actually also need to cultivate things and have them grow in the soil. If you don't work the soil, then the things won't grow because the soil gets dense. Um, But uh, just loosening up the soil and and preparing it doesn't uh, ripen the soil as well as actually planting things in it. So when you get into uh, the ability to come out of thought, ground in the body, which is for many people is a very f- important first step, um, knowing how to come out of the body, <laughs> how to come out of thought, ground in the body, which is 99.99% of our effort um, in practice is just coming out of these strong habits of mind. Um, and learning to ground in the present moment, um, ground in the body, specifically. But it's just part of the training. It's not. It's not the whole of the path. Um, there are other aspects, even of classical Buddhism, of engagement. There's a. There are eight folds, and um, three of them are very meditative, but three of them are very active. They're about how do we communicate. There's sort of. It's called right speech, but it's really um, right rapport. It's, it connects to body language, it connects to communication. What are you communicating? Why are you communicating? Um, so it, 
the, the whole realm of our of our exchange with other beings. Um, that's a that's a whole fold of the path right there. How do we establish ourselves and take care of ourselves? This livelihood issue is is a way to engage into the world, um, and then a host of actions, right actions, um, that are helpful. So not just to come out of thought, create space, but then also to re-engage. That's where um, sort of emptiness and activism. Sometimes it's talked about emptiness and compassion, um, and compassionate, uh, compassionate action. Um, but I I like bringing up activism because it's something that we actually have in our culture, um, a view on. Um, social justice and a view on um, uh, not just following convention, but being proactive and being revolutionary. Um, there's, there's an impulse that we have to be engaged and not just to take things handed down. I mean, we all do, but we have a lot of cultural mythology about being very engaged, very proactive. So I know the times um, that I've done that, uh, combined the two, it's been very rich. At times they can seem like they're opposites. There was a time when I was um, doing a lot of 10-day meditation retreats and weekend retreats, and then working in a crisis shelter for homeless teenagers. The crisis shelter for homeless teenagers, the, you know, the doorbell's ringing, and there's a two moms with two toddlers and the kids are crying and the phone's ringing and I've got to make dinner and also you know, write things down on the log and then someone's having a meltdown over here and someone else is having a good day and wants praise for their grades and, and so I'm just in this soup of chaos um, and the 10-day meditation retreat sounds really good at a certain point. It's just like, oh, I need space. I can't hold this anymore. Go on a retreat and I would come out and I would feel really spacious I'd be a little afraid of walking back into the shelter, like, okay, I don't have these trustworthy contractions of, of self. I, can, I don't know how to do things, or I'm going to go in there and be this great shelter worker. Um, I'm walking in, just kind of floating into that space. And yet I found that when I would float into the, the shelter, um, in that kind of spaciousness, I could handle the chaos. I couldn't solve every problem, but I could coexist with the chaos. And in that coexistence, there would be some solutions, some help I could offer, but it wouldn't be a tight strategy. I must make this thing happen. I must do all these things until myself feel overwhelmed and and resentful or um, overwhelmed or uh, tired. I could float through it more. And in that floating through, I noticed that the kids who came into the shelter they would trust me really quickly because I would be the one adult that wasn't hitting them with some contracted formula, some process that they'd figured out. Okay, kid, leather jacket, chains, you're like this. So I'm going to put you over here with this person. You call Sally, 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. She'll take care of you. Okay, you, over there. But just sort of floating through, it's like, okay, you know, I have these this history. I have some things I could um, guess about this person, but they're really just thought. Are they true? And just having some ability to be present, this kid with the leather jacket and the chains and da 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 relaxes. We start to talk. I actually have space to talk with this person, not process them. And in trusting me, they reveal something vulnerable that of all their family, they most trust their aunt. And if I didn't have time, they wouldn't tell me that. And so I'm trying to figure out Okay, where can this kid go? They can't go back with their with their parents because that's brutal. But they feel safe with their aunt. Well, there's a beautiful solution. There's a homegrown relationship that this kid can act on, and I can assist there as opposed to me having to figure it out. And so I began to notice that um, even though my activism would get tight, and I sort of think I can't take ten days off because it's all going to fall apart without me. <laughs> I'm that important. Um, but with some spaciousness, I could walk in and suddenly there are actually solutions. I could draw upon my thoughts and formulas because you know they're not completely 
um, ungrounded, but I'm not tight on them. And in offering space into places of crisis, there would grow possibility. And then all the sitting I did, which would get a little bit um, existential. Day seven, I'm watching another breath. Why am I doing this? Like, what does this do? Is this really helping me much? Is it helping other people much? I don't know. When I would come out of retreats and then not have a way of engaging, I would float around in kind of a mental jacuzzi. It was nice. I could take in that sense. But it would dissipate, and I'd kind of wonder, okay, that was interesting. But when I could actually be really scarily courageous and take all that nudity of, of just being in that space, coming out of these ego identities, being feeling somewhat naked. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure if, if that's the best way of communicating it, but walking into that shelter after 10 days of being quite uh, subtle and vulnerable and, and quiet, and walking right into the shelter where there's you know really strong, violent, emotional stuff happening. I would feel very disarmed, and yet I saw the benefit of it. And that fed into why I would do it. Why would I practice? Well, it's that useful. And then I, being engaged, I was like, well, this is a beautiful way to live. You know, I'm actually here. I'm interconnected with people. There are problems in my greater community, and I'm a part of what's happening. There's not always solutions, but it's so much better to not sort of walk by somebody, oh, I have no idea what to do with this homeless person. Ugh. I can't deal, I can't deal, and walking by. person like, okay, I don't have a solution, but I'm not closing my heart down. And that opening of rapport um, sometimes would lead to solutions, but one thing it would give you is just not this contraction from the world, not a pullback from what's obviously frustrating. And then expanding that out, if you want to really um, work on global warming, or you want to work on the war in Iraq, or whatever you feel um, is frustrating about very large political um, projects. As I've seen in the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, um, there are these two poles that meet, right, the Buddhist Peace Fellowship. You have these cave-dwelling monks and nuns that kind of want to come out and be of use, um, not just teach retreats, but they feel compelled to come out a little bit. And then you have these crackly, gristly, but very sophisticated activists who are burnt out and want a little more space, and these guys want a little more fire and want to be of use, and these people are, are fried. And they come and they begin to kind of uh, connect with each other in this one location and watching how they can feed each other so that the sophistication of engagement piece has the space to hold it so that you're not just a burnt out, frustrated, jaded activist, um, that you have the space to hold your compassion. And you're not just a spacious, compassionate, but somewhat remote and removed yogi, but you have a way in to connect with people and to realize your bodhisattva aspirations or your um, your inspiration to um, be in con- to realize interconnection, you feel it. But can you also put it into action? Can you um, manifest it in your life? And that's what I love about living in the Buddhist Peace Fellowship, working there, is um, I get the encouragement to become spacious. So if I'm getting too tight, like around the election coming up, and I definitely visit the internet a little bit too much, scanning for little hints and clues about you know, this big change that might happen. I can feel myself getting into opposition, like, oh, I want to win, they better not win, and I'm getting tight and divisive. Um, I have encouragement to bring in space enough to hold that so I don't get locked down into a win-lose opposition, I hate them, I hate these guys more than I hate these guys, and who's the lesser of these evils. Um, get the spaciousness. But then I also get a place where I'm not just spacious. I'm not just sort of walking around knowing that there are things happening in the world that could use attention 
you know, I just don't know how to plug in. So do I want to take one more walk on the beach? And do I want to drink one more you know, cup of peppermint tea? And do I want to keep soothing my mind while I know there are things happening? I know there's suffering happening in myself and in others. I would like to address it. So I can actually find a place of, of addressing it as well. And there are these two great forms of it. There are two great forms of service. The service side where you're just a compassionate presence. Um, like the Zen hospice is an example of that. There's really nothing you're supposed to do but be there and be present. And there's nothing necessarily proactive or there's no great thing you're supposed to change except be there and um, connect to someone who's going through a very huge process, the dying process. It expands practice. It expands the mind. It, it solves things by giving you a sense of priority. This engagement is very uh, um, soothing to your own suffering by allowing you to not feel apathetic or overwhelmed, um, to give you a place of, of turning this true sense of interconnection into something you're actually manifesting. Um, or you can do this uh, activism if you really like it, if you really like not just dealing with the... Um, the outcome of the way our society is developed by thinking about changing it, thinking about being smart and sophisticated and what can we do to actually change and guide our culture. Um, activism and service on the one hand and held within the spaciousness and the spaciousness filled with this activism and service. In your own life, you will find through your own priorities, the own, the own, your own makeup, what that looks like. You don't have to become a haggard activist lobbying in Sacramento or you don't have to walk the streets um, doing great service unless you're inspired. Already in you are the, um, these seeds of compassion growing. We all have them. It's just inherent in all of us. We have compassion. It's hardwired into us. If you create space, it will want to grow into that space. And however that looks to you, um, I encourage you to, to act on that. But support it with the spaciousness. To the degree, if you want 10 pounds of compassion or if you want a gallon of compassion, put in at least a gallon's worth of spaciousness to hold it. Don't try to fit a gallon of compassion in a cup of space. You'll be overwhelmed. Um, but if you have 50 gallons of spaciousness, don't just put in a cup of compassion. Like really put it into use. You know, step out a little bit and you'll find that it's not more exhausting if you are actually engaging something that's meaningful. That sense of meaning um, has a way of fulfilling you in a wholesome way that um, takes problems that you might have, like a, a day at the Zen hospice is very clarifying for what's actually important and it's not your taxes, <laughs> you know, but it can, it can take over the mind like weeds, but you go and actually do something meaningful and it brings perspective. Um, so develop both and then uh, and keep making them bigger, keep cultivating space and then keep filling that space and using that space with your own love and wisdom and compassion and keep stoking the fires of compassion so that you have fires that inspire you um, and, uh, and fill the spaciousness that you have. So I'm going to wrap there and open up for any reflections you have um, or questions. Yeah. Yeah. I got a mic. Um, so do you think that other people can sort of take advantage of your spaciousness or be greedy with it. Um, for example, I have this coworker, and he talks too much. Right. Way too much. Um, so I find that when he's around, I really contract because any amount of room you, you give him, he's going to filibuster and right. take it all. <laughs> right. Well, that's um, there are a couple things to say. One is um, after some point, there's a, there's a way of stretching beyond your comfort to find space that you didn't know you have. So you could go about your day and then you encounter this person and you give them a little bit of time. So you stretch a little bit. It's not going to be your first choice, but they're there. You stretch. 
there is a wisdom to kind of getting a sense of um, when is that gallon of need meeting a half gallon of space. Like there are things I got to do. And I'm my, okay, I have 50 gallons of spaciousness. And I already filled it up with 49 things. I've been good today. I've really kind of, I'm using my spaciousness well. I'm doing things that are very important to me. And this person's coming and they're trying to, to add something. I just can't fit it in. You see if that's actually true first. You don't want to write people off too quickly. And you don't want to shy away from uncomfortable situations, social situations. There is a place of expansion um, to meet somebody. But there also is a wisdom recognizing that um, you can meet people um, who would um, uh, want to take your attention. And it's really only... I, w- I want to be practical and recognize that, th- that they're, to recognize a certain limit beyond a healthy stretch is very practical. But I don't want to... Um, to too strongly validate um, limitations either, because I think we all have vast limitations. <clears throat> I mean, vast limitations. We all have vastness that isn't limited. Um, <laughs> so there's always a way of stretching, and um, you have to find that balance. And when you're spacious, really, no one can take that from you. You actually don't have a limited amount of spaciousness. I mean, we're all quite vast in our potential. When we are when we are contracted in our in our sense of ourselves, we'll perceive that we have only so much attention or only so much energy, and out of our our own little contraction, we'll start creating struggle around people who might be taking my time or my attention. I don't have time for them. There is a the greater liberation. The, the short-term freedom is in recognizing your limits. The greater liberation is um, where am where am I caught up in this? I don't want to be a bad person. Um, I want to be someone who can help all beings at all time. There is, there is an I that's creating some of the limitation in the encounter. So that's where, over time, you will expand, is feeling out how far can you go before your own contracted sense of I is causing a limitation. And then be gentle on yourself, compassionate, because it's not just about, oh, check that thing out, but um, sensing in, like, what am I holding on to that I can't give this person a little more time? And I guess another tact is, like, is it skillful? Is it, is it meeting this person's need to just let them rattle on? I mean, that's a whole other thing about sort of wise action. Just not only do you have the space for it, but a reflection of what would be wise for this person. Um, so I don't know if that got to it. Yeah. The mic is walking across the floor. <laughs> uh, I just have a comment. I, I really enjoyed your uh, the, the way you the way you put that. I mean, I've heard it different ways here. But I, I think it's very powerful the way you the way you put it. So I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks. Yes. I notice in, in the work that I do, um, I'm, a, I'm a hospice nurse, mm-hmm. that when I'm engaged with a client, that I can I can be there with them, and, and the t- it, it seems timeless. Mm-hmm. And then I'll go back to my car and I'll look at my watch and I'll say, oh, and then I'll get into this, I'll get contracted, yeah, and, and I'll have this this the pressure, I'll have that pressure. And I was wondering if you can maybe comment on how I can maybe turn that around. Yeah. Those the, the <clears throat> in between times. Right. Or or or, or somehow may, maybe maybe have to bring some of that into the interaction so that to, I, I don't know. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, 
Uh, one thing to say is that um, we can try to describe the, the, the ideal states, open, spacious, loving, connected, and if we could find them all in our lives, it's good to have that reference point. Like, this is when it's just beautiful. So that moment when in work, um, or me, initially with puppies or whatever, it's a bit like um, having a compass that you know exactly what the ideal is. You know what it is that you want. You know where your heart and mind are just, it's a beautiful, beautiful part of life. And so you have that orientation and you take note. But, you know, in a compass, you don't, just because the compass points north doesn't mean you're supposed to only walk north. You do have to navigate and negotiate um, what's right in front of you. So the ideals are important to have, but the actual experience you're going through, you have to also account for. And I offer that out in that um, you will go through times of beautiful openness and you will go through contractions. Um, so not, not to judge yourself or get too frustrated with the fact that the heart can be so beautifully open and it won't stay open. And it will come and it will contract and will get caught back up in time. That's very, I mean, just pragmatically, that's... That's a lot of what happens. How to work with the contractions is is sort of a persistence, being very persistent to um, ground yourself moment by moment in the body, in beautiful moments like that. Train your heart and mind to be more present, not get caught up in things. And then one by one, the things that, that um, make you contract won't be able to. So it's a sort of a persistence of practice of being present as you're walking to your car, as you're breathing, as you're driving, knowing how to come into the body, how to come out of the thoughts. That's just good to do as a general backdrop. Um, do, do it in a sitting practice and then do it informally throughout the day. <clears throat> As you do that, you'll find that there are specific circumstances that make you contract. You begin to ID, like, it's very hard for me to find my breath when I turn my car on. It's very hard for me to find my breath when I talk to my boss. It's very hard for me. And so then you begin to uh, recognize those things that are the greatest challenge. And then when you're heading into them, you give a little more care and um, attention to uh, to feel your way into those mindfully. So if you're trying to be mindful all day long, you'll have so-so success, but you'll find it's very easy here, it's very challenging here. And in places where it's challenging, you then can apply a little more care so that you'll make inroads into those places where you contract. Tell me if that was any, if there's something helpful there, if I didn't actually get to your question. No, that, that was it. Yeah. And, and it, it feels, those in-between time feels a little bit like what this gentleman was talking about, you know, that, that uh, there's just, it's, I don't have this much to give. You know, or, you know right. in those, that, you know, now I'm going to run out of time. Right. Well, a, a lot of what we do, in this mindfulness practice <clears throat> is that our habits change slowly, but the first thing that happens is we learn to be awake within them. And so part of it, which is the, the hard part of practice, is you have your eyes slightly open in a very confusing place, and you just begin to taste the suffering in these contracted states. But then you get to know it. It's like, oh, I know, I'm caught. The reason I know I'm caught is that it sucks. (laughs) So now I'm caught. And that's where space begins to enter, is just real-time awareness. Right now, I'm stuck. Right now, I'm contracted. That's a huge step forward versus not even having any reflection, I'm caught now. The just being abjectly caught is you're in anxiety and you're worried and you're contracted and da, 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 da. there's no there's no space in there at all. 
And the first space is actually unpleasant because it's just awareness of how unpleasant it is. But that's the little uh, toehold to begin to kind of feel it out and unwind it. Um, so you go from a numb, disconnected suffering to an unfortunately aware suffering. But that awareness begins to break down the pattern. Now, um, formally, I would like to um, end this and those who need to go, go. But I'm also happy to stay if there are any uh, people with burning questions or shy people. Um, I'd be happy to stay a little bit longer. So thank you very much for your attention and your practice. And um, may you have both the fires of compassion and the vast spaciousness swirling in you as you leave and drive home.